This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. New inflation figures show the largest annual rises since the introduction of the GST. The Consumer Price Index, which measures the increased cost of goods per household, hit 5.1% annually. That's a 2% increase since last December. The numbers tell a clear story. Australians are struggling. Struggling to afford groceries, struggling to afford petrol, and struggling to keep a roof over their heads in a housing market that is spiralling out of control. Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Head of News Mike Tisha about the cost of living crisis in an election campaign. It's Friday, the 29th of April. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Gabs. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. So on Wednesday this week, the Inflation and Consumer Price Index figures came out. They were very high, uh, even higher than predicted. How's that gone down in the campaign, Lenore? It has been quite consequential in the campaign, Gabs. The 5.1% annual CPI for the March quarter was way over market expectations and it did come as a bit of a shock. The trimmed mean inflation, which sort of strips out the volatile changes and is used by the central bank to set rates, rose 3.7%. So these are the biggest changes since the GST and it sort of has a couple of immediate takeouts. It makes cost of living clearly the biggest election issue. It means that the RBA is very likely, almost certain, to raise rates from historic low of 0.1% next week. And it makes it much harder for the Prime Minister to capitalise on his sort of I'm the best economic manager line because fairly or otherwise this is not great news. This is bad news for households around the country. And it's all that people are talking about. This is what they're talking about every week when everyone does their shopping or fills up the car. So it, I think it makes it difficult for the Prime Minister to prosecute his economic management message. And it's going to keep on being the issue in the campaign because there's the interest rates decision next week. And then there's wages figures the week after. So it means that the economy and cost of living is really going to be the issue through to polling day. Mike, the coalition called the recent budget, you know, a cost of living budget. How much have those measures helped and are they helping or does the coalition have another plan to ease cost of living pressures? Yeah, so I guess the first thing we should say is, although we're talking about this in the context of an election, how the cost of living might affect the fortunes of the parties, it's really about what it means for real people. Um, we've run some quite distressing stories this weekend illustrating how the cost of living rises have affected people right at the bottom end who are suffering homelessness and rental increases, can, can't pay their bills, can't run their cars, you know, having to watch everything they spend in the supermarket. So we should always bear that in mind while we're talking about it in terms of the election. What has the government done to ameliorate the cost of living increases? Well, they've given $250 as a one-off payment to certain groups on certain benefits that came in on Thursday. What a coincidence. And when asked about the rental crisis, they've said, well, their policy is to help people buy homes through use of the first homeowners grant. That didn't seem particularly helpful to a lot of people renting. So, I mean, I think the main takeaway from the campaign on both sides has been how little 
both parties have offered to address this issue, even though, as Lenore says, it is the main thing that people have talked about when asked what is the current, you know, priority issue. Mike's absolutely right. The government was preparing for this with sort of short-term fixes that they hoped would sort of tide them over through the campaign, like reducing petrol excise and that $250 handout and tax offsets. Now that this figure has really sort of blasted into the campaign. Scott Morrison is really using the line, well, a lot of this is outside his control. And to, you know, to a large extent, that's true. The war in Ukraine is having an effect on international oil prices and the pandemic has an effect on supply chains and natural disasters have an effect on food prices. That's all true. But there's sort of three points to make about that. First, If it is all outside your control, it's a little bit hard for him to simultaneously argue that he's a genius economic manager that can make everything better again in ways that aren't available to his opponent. Secondly, it's hard for him to take credit for good economic figures or positive economic news like low unemployment which is also largely outside his control in that, or to, to some extent outside his control in that it's impacted by the fact that foreign workers aren't coming in because of the pandemic. And also, I think it really underlines what Mike was just referring to then, which is that it's only sort of outside your control if you're a politician, if you aren't tackling longer-term systemic policy issues, which could actually have an impact on these things in the housing market uh, in terms of wages policies. And we know that in terms of becoming more self-sufficient in energy, and we know that neither party is really going for those big issues in this election campaign. So I think, yeah, okay, it's outside of your control, but that doesn't always serve Scott Morrison's political purpose, I think, if you really think about it. Yeah, I mean, you know, Labor is really going for the fact that he just absolves himself of responsibility whenever things aren't going right. And I think also when he said the best way that he can help renters facing price hikes is to buy a house, that went down like a lead balloon, I think someone called it a let them eat cake moment. So does this help Labor in any way, Lenore? Well, I think it helps Labor in that the Prime Minister's on the back foot, the economy is the issue, but not in a way that suits him. And it helps Labor because they can put the pressure on him because people are feeling the pinch and the coalition has been in government for almost a decade. Labor has only got a few policies on the table that might help the underlying issues and the government doesn't have very many at all. I mean, Labor has got a policy on social housing, but it's dropped the big structural policies that it had at the last election campaign that might have stopped the crazy house prices in Australia that are really the driving force behind a big part of cost of living pressures and inequality in Australia. They decided that that was too hard because it's very hard to make the case that we should slow the increase in house prices because it's very unpopular among people who already have a house and an enormous mortgage. Um, But, you know, you'd think at some point some party is going to have to tackle housing and rental affordability in Australia in a way that creates a more sane market because that is a very big part of this cost of living crisis. Mm. What Labor took from the last election was that it doesn't pay to threaten the interests of people who are doing well out of the housing market or appear to threaten them, even if it's only the ones at the very top and to a limited extent to benefit people who are at the bottom end of the housing market. The lesson they took was that that didn't work and they have to be not frighten the horses, you know, they have to be more careful that, to pretend that they can help people at the bottom without 
uh, hurting people at the top. Which is their policy this time by putting in more sort of affordable and social housing into the market, which, you know, might make some difference, right? Sure, but it's a hard case to make. I think that that will have a huge impact. Although I thought that piece Ellen Fanning wrote for us recently was really interesting where, you know, she postulated, well, what would happen if we really went all in on trying to provide more social housing and more affordable housing and would that actually help both the rental crisis and home affordability because it would sort of take some of the heat out of the housing market. I thought it was a really interesting argument that she made in that piece. Yeah, and to make lifelong renting not to be seen as something that is going to leave you without a retirement plan. Um, Mm. The lifelong renting, as it is in some other countries, can be something that's perfectly achievable and financially sustainable, which for many people in Australia is not. It would also mean changing the rental laws in ways that might upset all the people who bought houses to negatively gear them and rent them out. Which brings us back to their negative gearing policies, which they've had to abandon (laughs) or felt they've had to abandon. (laughs) We've come full circle, mate. Of course, The reason people are really feeling the pinch is because wages haven't grown in a long time. In fact, for some people, wages have gone backwards. The coalition has been traditionally seen as the the better economic managers, but when asked about wages, people tell us that they trust Labor to do better on that. What's behind that, Lenore, and is there any justification for that feeling? Um Well, possibly, yeah. I mean, I think low wages growth has been a policy objective of coalition governments. They would call it sort of uh, protecting business from wages breakouts, but they have changed the industrial relations system in ways that were designed to prevent upward pressure on wages. Again, you know, wages are mostly set in bargaining between private companies and workforces. Governments could take action on things like the gig economy and insecure work, which is something that sort of undermines wages from the bottom end. They could support public sector wage rises. It's largely a state government thing, but they could do that. They could support the various wage cases in the caring economy that are in front of the Fair Work Commission right now. And that's one thing Labor has said that they would do and the government hasn't said that they would do. There are things that the government could do to push wages up again because at the moment wage increases are well underneath the inflation rate, which is part of why households are feeling the pinch as much as they are. How much do we know about where in the country voters are really feeling the pinch on these cost of living pressures? We do know quite a lot and our own Seat Explorer interactive that we published at the start of the election campaign has a lot of fascinating data on this. You can sort all the electorates by numerous measures, including socioeconomic data, and that shows that the seats where the cost of living crisis is worst are... There's a variety of them, but there are in some rural areas, some regional areas, outer suburban areas in the big cities, in Tasmania, some seats, at least two seats that are highly contested at this election, predominantly Labour-held, some Labour marginals, some National Party seats, and the best-off seats where you would assume the cost of living pressures at least are paradoxically the ones where most of the or much of the attention in this campaign has been focused, which are the ones where liberal held seats where mostly moderate liberals are being challenged by the teal independents, uh, as we've talked about in previous episodes. And I thought looking at that data, one of the really interesting things was just the incredible divide between electorates. It uses this measure of advantage and disadvantage, which takes into account 
you know, a, a range of things, not just household income, but other measures as well. And by that measure, the Labor-held electorate of Spence in the northern suburbs of Adelaide and Mallee in Western Victoria held by the Nationals were the most disadvantaged. And as you say, a lot of those teal independent seats are the least disadvantaged. But the striking thing to me was the divide. Like the seats, the most disadvantaged seats often had almost no households at all in the top 30% according to that disadvantaged measure. And the converse was also true in a lot of those teal independencies like Kooyong and McKellar and Wentworth and North Sydney and Warringah, they have well over 90% of households in the most advantaged category, the top 30%, and almost none at all, like 0.2% in the bottom 30%. It's really evidence, I think, of the way particularly our housing policies just exacerbate this incredible inequality in the system and an incredible sort of division, geographic division of inequality. It's fascinating. I would really recommend that listeners have a look at the data and look at where their electorates sit because it's just, it's really, really interesting to have a look at. Mm. And it does point to the different issues that are prominent in those electorates where, for example, we did a seat profile recently of Wentworth and climate change was the issue that everyone brought up in that electorate, understandably, because that's what the teal independents are primarily standing on. And that's obviously a huge issue and should be prominent in everyone's minds at this election. But it's understandably in some of those other electorates, uh, you can see why people who are just getting by from week to week, why that is not necessarily front of mind for them. Or it's front of mind insofar as, you know, they've been impacted by natural disasters that are happening more often, but their immediate concern is that there is no rental property that they can possibly afford. I mean, the rental crisis, you know, isn't as discussed in the election campaign as much as housing, but, you know, we've been doing a lot of reporting on it this week and it is, it's quite astonishing. And it was something that the two leaders were asked about in that first debate. And Scott Morrison's response was, oh, well, we've got Commonwealth rental assistance. But Stephanie Convery wrote a story for us this week where it showed that the increase in rents across capital cities has been sort of almost 14%. Commonwealth rental assistance has gone up by about 4%. So, those, you know, the number of households in rental stress, as in spending more than 30% of their income on rent, is soaring. And there's increasing numbers of families that can't afford to rent. Yeah. And what also struck me about Stephanie's reporting this week is that it's not just people on welfare. No. They're people who are really struggling who have full time jobs. Yep who have full-time jobs and there's, you know, there are just in the areas where they live, there's no housing that's affordable for them to live in. It really is thought-provoking that we live in a country where full-time working families struggle to put a roof over their heads, but it's true. Mm, I think it was uh, in one of Peter Hannum's columns this week where he pointed out that rents carry twice the weight of transport, of petrol essentially, in the basket of goods and services that the Bureau of Statistics uses to compile the consumer price interest. But if you compare the, as he pointed out, if you compare the amount of attention that was given to fuel price rises and the government response to it to cut the, cut the excise temporarily, that is not at all reflected in the 
response either in the media or from government. And, of course, they're connected because if you have to move further and further and further away from work to afford rent, then you have to drive further to work and use more petrol. I mean, you sort of, you know, it's a catch-22 situation, I think, for lots of households. If there are this many households really struggling and neither of the major parties is talking to them, does this open a gap for the minor parties to get in there and start talking about those kinds of issues? Probably, although I don't know that they're (laughs) necessarily doing it in an entirely credible way. I mean, Mm. you'll have seen that Clive Palmer has ads all over the place promising to legislate to cap mortgage rates at 3%, -hmm. which sounds superficially attractive until you think for like one half of a nanosecond that the Reserve Bank sets the cash rates and the retail rates are set by the private banks and what the hell does the government have to, like, what would they legislate? I really don't know. I mean, is Palmer proposing to subsidise the banks? I don't understand. I don't think... It is possible for a government to do that. Are but you saying, Manor, that Clive Palmer hasn't, hasn't totally <laughs> thought things through? Yep, I know. <laughs> Shocking so but true. <laughs> but we should say that um, anecdotally at least some of our reporters on the ground have found that that campaign is resonating with some voters at least. Uh, it remains to be seen, obviously, whether that translates actually into a vote for Palmer, but some people have certainly mentioned it and, you know, you would expect that just given the sheer volume of advertising. And the Greens have also announced a housing policy, I think, haven't they, Mike? Mm. The Greens have proposed possibly more credible policy than Clive Palmer's interest rate cap, but um, (laughs) their plan is to, they say, build one million new publicly owned, affordable, high quality and sustainable homes. Adam Bant did mention this in his press club address um, earlier this month, but it did not receive a huge amount of attention. It's fair to mention that is their policy. They are not tracking exceptionally well in the polls, and they're also under pressure from the you know, the rise of the independence as well. So um, it's fair to say I think that that has not helped the issue particularly get any more attention in the campaign uh, than it would have done, you know, than it should do. Mm. Being mindful of the fact that, as we've just discussed, the real people are hurting at the moment. But we are in an election and I'm wondering if this crisis works better for one major party than the other. Accepted wisdom among political pundits would say that if we're talking about the economy, that would usually benefit the coalition. But I think in this instance, it actually might well benefit Labor because, you know, people see the status quo, the current situation as difficult in their personal lives. And Scott Morrison is basically sort of blaming everybody else. So it plays into Labor's, you know, he doesn't take responsibility attack line. And Labor has a very easy case to make, you know, it's a triple whammy. That's what Jim Chalmers keeps saying, you know, your wages aren't going up, you know, prices are going up, your mortgages are going up. It's kind of an easier case for Labor to make at the moment. Next, a grave miscarriage of justice. Now we come to what we can't get out of our head. Lenore, what have you got in store for us today? Um, I can't stop thinking about a story I read on the ABC about some very bad 
as in not very good at it, drug smugglers <laughs> who sailed from Madagascar to Western Australia with a lot of drugs on their boat, but they ran aground and someone came to try and rescue them and they tried to run away, but then they were stopped by a giant aggressive seal and then they got caught um, and they were sort of in trouble because the boat that was coming to kind of rendezvous with them and take the drugs also ran aground on a different atoll and somewhere along the lines they were also trying to re- someone to sort of, you know, report this problem and they couldn't dial the number properly so they didn't ring the person. And then apparently when they were discovered, um, the police found recordings of them actually loading the drugs in Madagascar or wherever it was that they got the drugs onto their boat saying, what the fuck? How many fucking hell? Because in an apparent reference to the amount of drugs that were being loaded onto their boat and they were also making references about cocaine and ice. These cases were before the courts in Western Australia, but it was just a very long and complicated tale of um, drug smugglers who weren't very good at their drug smuggling Sounds job. Sounds like the prosecution has a pretty good case. <laughs> uh, Mike, what can you not get out of your head? Uh, so my story this week, well, this is in fact a whole series of stories that we've been doing uh, by reporters Chris Norse and Ben Doherty about a very long-running case, well, yeah, long-running cases in Western Australia of uh, Indonesian boys who were essentially lured onto um, boats that were unbeknown to them, um, going to smuggle people into Australia in the, uh, you know, in about 2009 and were subsequently intercepted by the Navy, arrested, charged as adults and jailed in maximum security conditions in Western Australia for years in some cases based on a technique to measure their ages by x-raying their wrists, which was subsequently found to be completely discredited. And um, there are some really terrible human stories in this series. It's, it's, a, it's quite incredible. I really encourage people to read it. It illustrates the human consequences of, you know, when people are talking about hardline policies on refugees and people smugglers and boat turnbacks and all that sort of thing. These are some of the human consequences of those policies. And this all took place under a Labor government, we should point out. It's not a partisan point. And uh, the outcome for these boys was really terrible. And, um, you know, whatever we think the virtues of those policies may or may not be the consequences should be borne in mind. Yeah, Mike, I think that's a really important story. And if you want to hear more about it, the Full Story team has interviewed Chris Norse, one of the reporters, as well as some of the men involved. And you can hear all about that in Thursday's episode of Full Story. I really highly recommend listeners go and find that and give it a listen. Thank you so much, Lenore, for joining us today. Thanks, Gabs. And thanks, Mike. All right, thanks, Gabs. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Camilla Hannon. The executive producers are Miles Martignoni and me, Gabrielle Jackson. Don't forget to tune in to Campaign Catch-Up with Jane Lee this afternoon and Laura Murphy-Oates will be back with everyone else on Monday morning. We'll see you then. <laughs>